Well, good morning, everybody. Nice to see you today. Uh, and and uh, we're in a series now. We're looking at five of the big reasons that many Americans have decided they are done with church. And I don't, uh, I'm not talking about pandemic habits of online church. I'm not talking about people changing churches. I'm talking about the growing number of Americans who are deciding they are done with church altogether. And one of the things they're saying in some circles is that the church represses women. The church represses women. Repress means to hold down or hold back. And does the church do that? In Western society, we've made a lot of advances in terms of women's rights, especially in the workplace. There are more CEOs that are women than ever before. We have women engineers and scientists and doctors, fields that had previously been almost exclusively men. We have women governors and even a woman vice president. Uh, comedian Tim Allen says how great it is that women have more choices than ever before and less judgment. He says uh, a, w- a woman today uh, can be married or single. She can have kids or not have kids. She can work or stay at home. He says, men, we have the same two options we've always had, work or prison. <laughs> yeah, we celebrate the advancement of women and as the father of a daughter who is a senior in high school. I am so grateful that she will have many opportunities available to her that were not open to previous generations of women. She can do anything and be anything that she wants to be. Uh, Now, also as the father of a, a daughter who's a high school senior about to go off to college, I am alarmed by the rising rates of sexual assault against women on college campuses. The number of assaults is up. It it is way up. And some people wonder, well, are assaults up or is the reporting up? In other words, are women now reporting things that previously went unreported or underreported? But no matter how you look at it, it, it's terrible. Uh, Reporting is up and it's still underreported. And the data seems to show there is a rise in violence against women. Now, how could that be? How could the same society that's made all these advances for women in the workplace also have a rise in violence against women, not just on the college campus, but across the board? In some ways, our society has made enormous advances. We are moving forward. In other ways, it feels like we're moving backwards to the dark ages. I can't decide if this is a great time to raise a daughter for the opportunities that will be available to her or a horrible time to raise a daughter because the world is not yet safe to her. Now that's the society, that's the culture around us. The question today is the church. Has the church hurt or helped the cause of women? Has the church hurt or helped the cause of women? Or to flip the question another way, compared to the culture around us, is the church doing better than culture, out front and leading? Is the church on par with culture? Or is the church actually worse than culture? And there's a fair number of women that are saying today they're done with church because they have more freedom and protection outside the church than they do inside the church. And that's the heavy topic we're going to look at today. Uh, Jerry read for us earlier part of Paul's closing of his letter to the church at Rome. 
and uh, she read a section that Paul was greeting a lot of people in the ancient world. They would put greetings at the end of the letter. In our day, we would think of greeting most appropriately at the beginning of a letter, but in the ancient world, they did it at the end. And I had her read it to you uh, for a couple reasons. One, there were some really hard to pronounce names that I didn't want to tackle. And two, I wanted you to hear how many names in that list, and she only read part of the list. If you keep going, there are 29 names listed in the greeting from the Apostle Paul, and 10 of those 29 are women. And they are deacons and church planters and teachers. We know for certain that women in the early church played a prominent role, especially when compared to the culture around them. Middle Eastern, first century culture, very patriarchal, very male-dominated, but inside the church, women were finding new levels of dignity and influence and contribution. The church was ahead of the culture in terms of women's rights and freedom and status, and I think it's very fair to say the church was ahead of culture for hundreds of years. But some have observed that maybe the Western society, that's true, the church was ahead of the culture, has the Western world, you know, not only caught up to culture in terms of attitudes toward women, but surpassed the church? Has the culture now surpassed the church, and is the church lagging behind culture? And I think that's a fair critique in many instances. But the church lagging behind culture is the mildest of accusations. Uh, people are saying not only is the church lagging behind the culture around us, the teachings of the church and the teachings of the Bible have been used to keep women in abuse and in dangerous situations. I want to play for you a portion of one of the interviews that, that Terrence Gray conducted with people who are done with church. And this one's, uh, this one's a little raw, I want to warn you, but take a look. What made you decide to be done with church? I really had to come to terms with that. I was in an abusive marriage. I mean, it was emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Um, but it was trying to, do, trying to do things the right way and asking for help for years and years and years. But when it all fell down, I had written several emails because it was just easier for me to communicate that way to the pastor who was kind of over us and um, ended up giving him permission to share with the care committee. Um, and then it was very, well, I don't know if you'd be comfortable staying in the church. Maybe you need to look somewhere else. And so it was, I was the wounded party, but I was the one outcast. Like I was the one pushed out. Um, a lot of women, when they choose to go ahead and pursue divorces on these grounds of abuse, they get excommunicated. Like it's bizarre. Um, you know, I'm, t I'm telling you, he's threatened to take my life recently and now I'm leaving and you all know this is the most dangerous time for me to be in this situation um but it was like as soon as they as soon as we had that care committee meeting I never heard I've never heard from any of them ever again yeah. I went back six months later to try to talk to the head pastor to just be like hey let me tell you kind of how you do this better and I, I, I gave up about five minutes in I was like this is a waste of my time he just couldn't yeah. hear any of it and they don't yeah. want to hear any of it he will straight up tell you that a wolf shouldn't, a wife should endure even a little bit of physical harm and being hit and beaten and stay in it. Like that's his stance. You are, you're still supposed to stay in that at least for a little while. So it's just really hard. And then, so I'm dealing with like the emotions of that. And as I'm unraveling and healing from all the abuse, you realize the church played a huge role in that. Of I 
stayed for years and years and years and watched it escalate and escalate and escalate because of what was being preached on the pulpit. So when you've got these men who are almost condoning abuse and you've got a husband that's abusing, you can't help but see God as an abuser. I mean, mm. it's just, you, you can't help it. That's just where your mind's going to go because it's the only, all these people who love you, this is how you're being treated. So it's kind of one of those of making sure your church elders are very humble and don't show those kind of narcissistic almost type tendencies. When you travel such a deep, dark road and come out like arm in arm with Jesus, you, you kind of can't handle how shallow a lot of worship services are. <laughs> I'm not done with Jesus. My relationship, I think, with God is richer than I ever dreamed because of mm. what I went through and what I had to feel from. But like going into organized church is still really hard. Well, to that brave woman and to every woman, I want to say I am sorry for the pain you have endured from the church. The church has not always stood above culture as a place of protection and advocacy for women. The truth is that the church has mistreated women over the years. There has been disrespectful and condescending speech from church leaders. There have been Christian men who have used crass sexual humor, and even treated women more as objects than as sisters. I'm sorry that the words of the Bible have been misused and misunderstood to keep women in harmful situations. This is tragic. It's not what God wants, and we can do much better. So if the Bible has been misused and misunderstood, what does the Bible actually say? And the time that remains, I want to give an overview of the teaching of the Bible on this subject. And our time is short, so I've put some resources in the sermon notes section of your app if you want to read up on this in greater detail. But we'll start at the very first chapter of the Bible in the account of creation, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we, we read this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. All right, so men and women are made in the image of God. The Bible does not say that one gender bears the image of God more fully than the other. They are co-bearers of the image of God. And the mandate from God to rule over, to tend creation, was given to the man and the woman. God does not give to the man a mandate to rule over the woman. The mandate to rule, to tend, is given to both the man and the woman. Now, sometimes people think, uh, well, the man must have played a leadership role because the very next chapter in the Bible, the word helper is used of the woman. You remember Genesis chapter 2, the very next chapter, it says, uh, it says this, the Lord God said, very familiar passage, it is not good for the man to be alone. God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. And this word helper sounds like kind of a junior assistant, like when I hold the flashlight for the guy doing plumbing under my sink. It's, it's a lesser inferior role. We think that until we understand this word helper in the Bible is used most often to refer to God. 
God is our help in ages past. The Lord is our helper. The Lord is a help in times of trouble. The psalmist used this word helper to refer to God. And when Jesus talks about his father sending the Holy Spirit, he says the father will send you a helper. So helper can't be inferior if it's used to refer to God. And then some people think, well, because the man was created first and the woman second, the man is more important because he was created first. But God made the animals before he made the man. So what do you do with that? If you can argue from the order of creation, you might go the other way and say God made the animals and then God made the man, which was an improvement over the animals. And then God made the woman, which was an improvement over everything. But you, but you can't do that. But you can't do that. The order of creation does not suggest equality. The Bible is clear that the man and woman equally created in the image of God and given together the command to rule and to tend over all of creation. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3, uh, or, uh, and here comes the fall. And this is going to bring the pronouncements, or what's sometimes called the curse. And this involves many losses that will hit creation because of sin. Work will now be frustrating. Death will now be part of humanity. And in the list of curses there in Genesis chapter 3, we read this one on the list. To the woman, he said, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now maybe you thought or assumed or were taught that this verse was God's intent for humanity. It is not. This is not in the creation, Genesis 1 and 2. This is the list of curses in Genesis 3. This is the curse from which Jesus came to overturn, for which Jesus came to overturn. This is not God's intent for humanity. And women, let there be no doubt in anyone's eyes of your worth before God. You are made in the image of God, women. You were created to rule, not to rule over men, Not to be ruled over by men, but to rule and to work side by side and to tend the glorious creation of God into its full potential. That's God's design. Now because of the fall, a lot of this went out the window. Men uh, men and women will struggle against each other and against their God now. Now even back in the Old Testament, however, we see some grace notes in that male-dominated patriarchal culture, uh, we see some grace notes that are almost surprising notes of, of the role that women play in the redeeming work of God. For example, God shows women as well as men to be prophets, to speak authoritatively on behalf of God. Miriam, the sister of Moses, uh, is said to be a prophet in Exodus 15. There's another woman named Huldah, who was a prophet that King Josiah and his leaders uh, took a lot of wisdom from during a national crisis. And then there's Deborah, who was not only a prophet, but a judge. And in the period of judges, where there were no kings, the judges were in charge. And Deborah, for a time, was the main leader of all of Israel. And then we get to the New Testament. Things really begin to move when it comes to the role of women. And one of the most striking features in Jesus' ministry that sets him apart from all other rabbis in his day was the way he related to women. 
Many ancient rabbis would not speak to a woman. Jesus did. Many rabbis in that day wouldn't teach women. Jesus did. There was even a group among rabbis, and I'm not making this up, that was called the bruised and bleeding rabbis. Because when a woman walked into their view, they would close their eyes uh, so as not to be tempted by the view of a woman, and they would keep their eyes locked shut until they were certain she was out of view. And so these rabbis were always walking into walls and trees, and they were the, they were the bruised and bleeding rabbis. They were that spiritual. Now against that backdrop comes this contrast of Jesus who had women as friends and it did not turn all weird and sexual and a lot of people in Jesus' day didn't believe that was possible. Jesus had women in his friendship circle and in his leadership circle. And we read that he traveled with women as well as men. Jesus traveled uh, from one town and village to another. The 12 were with him. Yes, those were all men. And also some women. Mary called Magdalene. Joanna, the son of Chusa. Susanna, don't you cry for me. And many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Do you realize how unprecedented this was? For Jesus to travel with men and women who treated each other like brothers and sisters. And some of these women apparently financially supported the ministry of Jesus. Jesus does not seem embarrassed by that. He welcomes it. Then one day Jesus questioned about divorce. And I want us to look at that. Uh, the scriptures record in the gospels some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him, right? The Pharisees were always testing him, trying to trip Jesus up. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus into uh, 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 to, to dividing some of his followers. In those days, there were two schools of thought on divorce, and they want to alienate Jesus from somebody, and so they asked him to pick a side. One side said the only reason a man could divorce his wife is because of sexual impropriety. The other school of thought said a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. If she burnt his toast, if she overseasoned the soup, if she decorated the bathroom in frilly colors, a man could just turn out for any reason at all. There was the any reason at all or the only uh, sexual infidelity. Uh, which school of thought do you think was most popular in Jesus' day? It was the any, any reason at all cause. But Jesus, no matter what he says, he's going to alienate himself from one of the groups of followers, and that was the intent of the Pharisees. So Jesus takes the high road. He doesn't answer their question at first. He instead goes right back to Genesis, that men and women are created in the image of God, and that God's dream for humanity is a lifelong union that no one should separate. But the Pharisees won't let it go at that. They push Jesus. They're going to get him. Why then, they asked. Did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? That's, that's, a mis, that, that's also not what Moses said, but we'll get to that. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. 
I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. All the instructions about divorce in the Bible are written to men. When Jesus talks about divorce, he speaks to men because men had all the power, men held all the cards. For a woman who in that day did not have means to support herself, divorce was devastating. It was life-threatening. And before the time of Moses, a man could just turn his wife into the street for any reason at all, and it was almost a death sentence. And so Moses regulated divorce back in his day. He made some rules about this. You had to have a written certificate. Uh, it had to be in writing, had to declare a reason, had to set free the woman to marry again. And uh, uh, these were in the Mosaic way, in the Mosaic law. It was a way of protecting the most vulnerable and to protect women from future exploitation. Jesus corrects his challengers. Moses didn't command divorce. But Moses didn't command people to get divorced. He didn't command divorce. He permitted divorce. There's a big difference. And Jesus says that Moses permitted divorce because your hearts were hard. Divorce is not what God wants for any of his children. But in a fallen world, it's going to happen. And Moses and Jesus affirms we, we, we should at least then regulate it and put in some safeguards for the most vulnerable people in our society. Now, I'm aware that the words of, that Jesus spoke to first century men to protect women, those same words have been used in our day to keep women in dangerous situations, and this was not the intent of our Lord. And if you are in a situation where you are being physically harmed or threatened, let me just say, you, you have to remove yourself from that situation immediately. Jesus cares about your physical well-being and safety. And if you're here and you personally know the pain of divorce, I want to say what I hope you already know, and that is you're very welcome to hear. No matter what the circumstances of your divorce, uh, there is nothing that the grace of Jesus Christ cannot cover. And I'm so glad to be part of a church that figured that out a long time ago. Some of you know the history of this church. Ward was one of the very first churches to open its arms in a big way to people who know the pain of divorce as early as the 1970s. A lot of churches have divorce recovery programs today, but it really started in this church and churches like it that we are a collection of fallible fallen human beings who rely on the grace of God. So throughout the Gospels, we see in the example of Jesus, Jesus included, promoted, and defended women. We look briefly at the Old Testament, we look at the example of Jesus, and now we'll look at the early church where women played a prominent role. Even before Pentecost, it says they were gathered in the upper room together um, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Men and women were there at Pentecost and then Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit is given to the church. And remember the story of Pentecost, there's flames above their head and they're speaking in tongues and it's this beautiful chaos of the Spirit being poured out. And so Peter gets up to explain what's going on because it just looks crazy. And Peter gets up and he gives a speech, gives a sermon and he quotes from the prophet Joel. And God says through the prophet Joel, now quoted by Peter, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. This is what's happening today. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. 
even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Peter's telling them what's going on is there is now a spirit-infused prophetic ministry that includes women and men. And it was the giving of the Holy Spirit that made all of that possible. That's what happened in that day. So the broad sweeping instruction of the Bible is that men and women are created equally by God, equally in God's image, and equally gifted for ministry in the church and in the world. Now there are a few places in the Bible where it seems to say otherwise. There are three texts in particular, three parts of the Bible, all written by the Apostle Paul, that pose the greatest confusion and the greatest difficulties to allowing women full participation in the life and ministry of the church. And I want to look at the most blatant one of the three. The Apostle Paul writes this, women should remain silent in the churches. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the big guy. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Unfortunately, we're out of time today. <laughs> now, this is a very surprising passage. The other ones like it because it seems to contradict what Paul said elsewhere and it contradicts the practice of the Apostle Paul. Here he says women should be silent in the church, but in another place he encourages women to speak in the church. And we know that Paul's leadership circle had women teachers and women leaders, and we know that churches under Paul's charge had women who would prophesy and pray aloud in worship services, and Paul encouraged them to do so. So what's going on here? Is Paul just one of those guys who says something somewhere and does something very different somewhere else? Uh, this is a real head-scratcher to any serious student of the Bible. Now, some scholars think, and I agree, that Paul must be addressing a specific problem that existed in this specific church. We do know that first century women had much more freedom inside the church than they did in the culture of their day. And one theory is that there were women who were abusing this new freedom and bringing into the church conversation that really should belong in the home. That's one theory. Another idea is that women were disrupting the worship service of this particular church by raising their hands and asking questions. There was an educational disparity in Paul's day that does not exist where you and I live today. But in that day, it's possible the women were disrupting worship. Paul said to this very same church, worship should be decent and in order. And maybe the worship was getting complicated and Paul's saying, look, get, get, your, get your learning done at home and don't disrupt the worship service. We also know there's some evidence to suggest that there was a cult in this time led by women. These were false teachers who were very forceful and aggressive and were demanding to speak in synagogues and churches of that day. And maybe this is Paul trying to protect this young church from these influence uh, of this outside uh, cult. Uh, that, that could be going on here. Uh, we also know, and this is especially true in other places like Ephesus, 
other passages will reflect this more, but there was a practice in that day in the city of Ephesus for sure that involved temple prostitution. Uh, it was a worship um, that really uh, got sideways and sexual. And Paul instructs Timothy, who led the church at Ephesus, this is where he says women should dress modestly and should wear head coverings. And I think that had to do with Paul wanting there to be no confusion between the church that's worshiping God and this temple prostitution worship going on just down the street. We don't know exactly what lies behind Paul's words in these three passages, but it makes sense to me that he was addressing a specific issue in this particular church. Because otherwise, if Paul really is saying women should be silent in church, then he's contradicting what he said elsewhere and he's contradicting the way he practiced. Uh, plus, the very same Apostle Paul that said those things also wrote these famous words. Paul penned these words, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The uh, uh, historian uh, Thomas uh, Calhoun sa says, um, Cahill says, this is the first truly egalitarian statement that appears in human literature anywhere. The first fully egalitarian statement in human literature, and it appears in the Bible. Just an just a amazing statement there. I believe that when you take into account the, the whole of Scripture, that the clear preponderance of evidence is that God's plan for the human race is that it be a redeemed community of men and women who share equally in the image of God, in the giftings of the Holy Spirit, in the ministry of the church, and in the partnership of the family. So really, let's thank God that he created us men and women. What a great idea God had here. Uh, how boring it would be if there were one gender and not the other. And I'm so glad to be part of a church that encourages people to serve based on their gifting, not on their gender. I'm so glad to be part of a church that says to our daughters as well as our sons, we want you to learn and grow and dream and lead and teach and use all of your gifts to bless the world as God has asked us to do. Will you pray with me now? Well, God, as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, we acknowledge our dependence on your grace. We are sinners. We have not loved you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We've not loved our enemies or prayed for those who persecute us. Forgive us. We have ignored your image in others. We have sought power over peace. We have pursued our way over your way. Forgive us. Cleanse us. Renew us as your people. As we come now to your table, unite us as your church, one body, one faith, one Lord. Release the gifts of your people so that your church would walk in strength. May your church reflect your Son. There's so much that can be said on the topic of the day, Lord. I pray that that which is true and noble and helpful, you would solidify to our minds and hearts. And that which is not of you, may it fade away and fade quickly. To you be the glory, honor, and praise, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.